0: Hello and welcome to episode 26 of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Stockman. I've begun graduate school at the University of Kansas where I'm pursuing a master's in museum studies. KU has a rich athletics history, and I'm excited to share that with you all in this episode. Today on the show, I speak with Abby Craig, curator at the Booth Family Hall of Athletics in Lawrence, Kansas. This facility is housed within Allen Fieldhouse, one of the great atmospheres in college sports. Abby and I have a wide-ranging conversation about her unique background, the 2022 Men's Basketball National Championship, and much more. For my overtime segment this week, I'll be exploring the KU career of Danny Manning, the leader of the 1988 Men's Basketball Championship squad at KU. The Danny and the Miracles team tore up March Madness, and I wanted to learn more about their best player. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Abby. Well, today on the show, I'm speaking with Abby Craig, curator at the Booth Family Hall of Athletics in Lawrence, Kansas. Abby, how are you?
1: I am doing pretty good.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm glad to have you here. And I would love to get started with your background and to kind of explore how you made your way to KU and as the curator of the Booth Family Hall of Athletics.
1: Okay, sure. So my background is a little bit, I would say, unique in the museum field based on my experience. Uh, So I actually attended KU as an undergrad and I was a student athlete here. I was a rower, did my bachelor's degree here at KU. And decided I wanted to kind of broaden my network a little bit. So I went to the University of Washington, um, did their museology graduate program, and then came back home to Kansas City after graduation to kind of just live at home while I job searched, right? Save some money, that sort of thing. And I reached out to the woman who was then director of traditions and and the museum, uh, looking to just kind of volunteer and kind of keep my hand in the game while I was looking for a job. Because, you know, in 2011, nobody knew how long that was going to take she said that they had an internship opening a full-time internship i came in and interviewed for that and i mean the day of my internship she showed me the security system so i was pretty sure i had the job and i was uh, an intern for a year um, and then they turned it into a full-time job i was the first professionally trained museum employee i guess that they had at the time my my title was intern then manager and then i was the director of the museum for a while um, pre-covid and then now i'm the curator. Uh, So it's kind of the the job duties have never changed, but it's kind of the job title has flipped a little bit. But yeah, so I've been here for I started in 2011, so almost 11 full years. I was out for a little bit with COVID, but I'm back.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And KU has such a rich history, too. And I'm from the Kansas City area and always knew about Allen Fieldhouse and Bill Self and Mario Chalmers and some of the things that happened in my lifetime. But yeah, that goes back to. Pre 1900, even with James Naismith and um, yep. all of that. So, how was the university kind of preserving that athletics history before the Booth Hall of Athletics? Or was there really anything?
1: You know, there was from from my understanding, uh, and again, this predates me because I started at KU in 2005, and the museum opened in 2000, January 2006. So, very much kind of at the same time. I didn't really experience KU before the museum, but by my understanding, there were kind of there were some trophy cases in kind of the east lobby area of Allenfield House. The center court that we currently have, the original, one of the original center court on the, it's currently it's stored vertically, uh, displayed vertically. It used to be kind of just flat on the ground so people could walk on it with the trophy cases on either side. And then different offices had, you know, their particular trophies in their office or their certificates and things like that. So there wasn't really like a centralized exhibit location. I mean, I think most of the trophies in Allen Fieldhouse were the basketball trophies, not anything else. Like we now have all of our sports represented um, in the museum.
0: And it sounds like the Booth family just had this big connection to KU, and they wanted to preserve that history and share it that they had experienced. And was that how it came about?
1: Yeah, I think so. They just they had um, long personal ties to the university and to the athletic program specifically. Um, they lived down the street, so you know they were at a lot growing up, and just kind of had that emotional tie to the place and wanted to preserve the history moving forward so thankfully for them we now have a nice facility that does that
0: cool i'd like to go back to the beginning too with james naismith and there's the original rules of basketball in the de bruce center which is not really part of the uh, purview of the booth hall of athletics but it's very similar. And I walked over there a couple weeks ago and it was really neat to see that. Yeah, But then my question is, how did he come to Lawrence, Kansas from Massachusetts?
1: So he actually came to Lawrence by way of Colorado. Um, Naismith and his family were in Colorado. He got his medical degree. I think, I don't know if it's the University of Denver, or University of Colorado, don't quote me on that. Um, but he was in Colorado anyways, getting his medical degree. Um, and KU needed a director of the physical education program, teaching classes, giving incoming freshmen physicals, um, and also running the chapel. And Naismith was fairly, I don't know, religious or spiritual, which term he would prefer. But Amos Alonzo Stagg recommended Naismith for this job at KU. Um, they had met out east. And so Naismith came to KU, technically from Colorado, with his family to take the job on campus that encompasses both, both physical education and uh, chapel services and sort of thing.
0: It's my favorite piece of trivia that he's the only head coach with a losing record at KU.
1: We hate that trivia.
0: <laughs> and he's the inventor of basketball.
1: It sounds so bad. I know, which is,
0: it's just kind of fun to see and look at like how different the game was back then and really all sports, but how some of the similarities are still there too, even to the, the modern game.
1: Yeah well and like it's it you know people say that he's the only losing coach right and he technically is um but coaching was not really a thing right like half the games he was a referee and he was very much not going to play favorites and you know he was he was refereeing the games fairly um whether that was to our detriment or to our benefit so calling him our only losing coach makes him sound bad like he but he wasn't really he didn't coach the kids like he was just right. there to make sure they didn't each other while they're running around, right? Like, so it's a very, it's a very different experience yeah. than we have nowadays.
0: Yeah, and then that kind of transitions over to Fog Allen, who I think is called the father of basketball coaching, and that was something I didn't really realize um, before I went over and, and looked at the um, Booth Family Hall of Athletics and just how I didn't realize he was a doctor too, and how that connection with mm-hmm. Naismith was interesting, and probably mm-hmm. how like revolutionary that was to have kind of a medical background and a sports background back then. So I know his impact has been really long lasting, but do you have any favorite Fog Allen artifacts or stories that are at the, the Hall of Athletics?
1: Well, Actually, one of my favorite artifacts was tied to Allen and his uh, his role as a doctor. So he was a doctor of osteopathy, you know, believed that the best way to win a game was to have healthy athletes competing. So that was kind of how he pulled in, you know, his massage therapy and, and things like that to keep his athletes able to play and play at, at peak performance. He was also very much a salesman. He created shoes, um, designed shoes for, for basketball players to wear in the 30s. Um, you know, he had a, a Fog Allen basketball designed um, with his name stamped on it, because of course. Uh, and then he had what was marketed and sold as Fog Allen liniment, the little brown medicine bottle from the 1930s. And it smells much like an icy hot rub. Um, it's got, it's, I think, kind of like a eucalyptus scent. I just think it's really interesting that, you know, back almost 100 years ago, they already knew kind of this was this was an ingredient that would help or, you know, like this was a a, um, a treatment, I guess would be the word uh, that would help with muscle pain and fatigue. Um, and it's something that we still use, you know, today in, in 2022 on the regular with our with our student athletes and their treatment.
0: Yeah, that is wild to think about that he was that forward thinking and focused on athlete health and, and wellness when that was probably mm-hmm. a competitive advantage to when not a lot of other teams were thinking that way. And and that's maybe why they won a lot.
1: Yeah, for sure. Kind of
0: along those lines, he was still coach when Wilt Chamberlain was here, right?
1: I'm going to have to double check my dates. Like I know he coached his freshman year, um, which Wilt couldn't play varsity because that was the rules at the time. Um, and I think he might've gotten one year with Wilt. Um, but I don't think he got both years of Wilt's varsity time Okay. Um, because he had reached, he was, I mean, he's a state employee, the basketball coach is a state employee. And at the time he was at mandatory retirement age and was not given the option to continue. That's interesting. Can you speak more about
0: the role that Wilt Chamberlain played at KU with not only his play on the field, but then also some of the the race relations back in the fifties and how um, he would have helped, restore those or help improve those with his, with his play?
1: Sure. So, yeah. So Wilt was a huge, highly recruited um, student athlete out of Philadelphia. Um, It was a a big get for us to to have him come to KU. He actually visited KU and Lawrence uh, during the Kansas relays in the spring. Um, And he was, uh, I mean, he was a multi, multi multi-sport athlete, but, you know, loved track and field. He competed for us for track and field as well. But so he came to KU for the relays, really enjoyed Lawrence, um, decided to come to KU for basketball, at the time, Lawrence, much like other, you know, area locations, was still segregated. Uh, I don't know if that was a legal practice or if it was just a social tradition. It wasn't really a thing. Like, you couldn't not let Wilton, right? Like, highly famous. Everybody knows him. Everybody can identify him. You got to let him in. So, yeah, it was easy. It was easier, I should say. Not easy, probably, but easier for him to go places. But at the same time, like the people that he hung out with were not allowed for a lot of places to, to sit with Wilt if he was sitting in kind of, you know, the the white section of the restaurant or the theater or whatever. So Wilt and some of the other student athletes, we had several fairly prominent student athletes uh, on our other teams on track and, and primarily at the time as well. And they all went to the chancellor yeah. here on campus and said, you know, this kind of sucks and we're not happy with it. Wilt threatened to leave. It wasn't improved because he didn't feel like he needed to put up with that. And you know, he was certainly correct in that. So the chancellor then turned around and, and threatened is the word that comes to mind. I don't know if it was quite that aggressive, but threatened uh, other local businesses, you know, much like the movie theater, for example. And pretty much said, you know, if you don't desegregate and let our student athletes sit where they want, um, I'm going to go ahead and show those same films that you guys are showing. I'm going to show them on campus and I'm going to show them for free. I'm going to take all of our student business that you have been getting and we're going to keep it on campus and that'll be, you know, your loss. So with that kind of hanging over their heads, I think it was a pretty easy decision um, to desegregate and let everybody kind of sit where they wanted. There was, like I said, I don't know if there was any official anything in place that was like legally things had to be desegregated, That there was a, a bigger legal battle that went on. But I think as far as I understand, that that was it was mostly a social thing. So it was just that pressure that was all that was kind of needed to to tip the the balance. But yeah, it was not saying that it wouldn't have happened in a similar time without Wilt um, because we did have those other student athletes. But Wilt was such a big name and so identifiable, right? That he added a lot of weight to the scale for African American student athletes.
0: Right, and hopefully it showed people like how unjust it was to have the segregation. Was right if Wilt can't sit with his own teammates, then how is that creating a, a nice and more unified society, which is, which is just interesting to think about?
1: Well, and like he had, you know, he had plenty of to play pretty much wherever he wanted, you know? So, like, it's not like if he left KU, he wasn't going to get to play anywhere. We, we had to have, I mean, you kind of had to keep him happy a, a bit socially because otherwise he would leave and then KU would lose out on, you know, all of that notoriety and success that comes with having Wilf on your team.
0: I'm curious if you have a kind of a favorite, underrated, or like lesser-known KU student athlete. Because Wilt Chamberlain, Danny Manning, Mario Chalmers, Brandon Rush—like some of those people are more well-known. But is there somebody that either the museum talks about, or just you have like a, a personal favorite?
1: Um, I, I can't pick a single one because that's kind of a, their whole group. But it's the, the women who competed for KU in the late '60s and early '70s when we first started our women's athletics program, um, was 1968. Um, and as a as a female student athlete in today's world, you get, if not exactly the same, you know, highly, highly comparable gear and treatment and access to resources like tutoring and and things like that on campus. Back in the day when it started, like these women were just undervalued. Like they, they raised their own funds. They did bake sales and car washes and things like that to raise money to travel for games. You know, they rented cars. Um, and caravan places where they wanted to that, to play opponents. Coaches were essentially volunteer. They had a budget of something like, I don't know, $2,000 for the whole first year for uniforms, for coaches, for equipment, for travel, for all these things, you know, had had terrible access to facilities. It was late at night or early in the morning because the men had priority, which, you know, that was the way that it was. But all these women, like they, and they played, they all played multiple sports, right? Like they all played volleyball in the fall and basketball in the winter and then ran track in the spring. And you just have to admire the dedication. Like they played because they loved it, right? They weren't playing because they were on scholarship. You know, they wanted to, to have that camaraderie and that bond with their teammates. And, and they, for some crazy reason, they wanted to put themselves through 6 a.m. practices, you know, like, <laughs> and a lot of them are still uh, around and involved with our alumni stuff. And the stories that they tell are just fantastic and, and they're just like a, a great group of women. And so they're kind of my favorite uh, underrated people. And it's the 50th anniversary of title nine this year, um, something that we're celebrating. So hopefully we get a lot of them back more frequently. Like usually they come back, you know, once or twice a year for, for homecoming and or for, you know, like if they have a team reunion or something like that, but getting them back and, and getting to talk to them a lot is, is always a treat for me. So um, I'm excited for this year and, and to see them all.
0: For sure. Yeah. Thank you for highlighting them, because I think that's important to just showcase how stark the differences were between male and female student athletes. And and that gap is still not all the way closed, but it is um, a lot better now with Title IX and with a lot of the uh, media coverage for that sure. women's sports are getting, for which sure. is great. So definitely helpful to see. I would love for you to talk about some of the educational aspects of the museum, or school field trips, and ways that the museum helps kids learn about sports.
1: So, unfortunately, it's not been a lot recently, obviously with COVID, and right. we're we're trying to to work on developing a, a new program that will encourage teachers to bring their kids out uh, and come back and visit us again. Um, but pre-COVID, basically, what we did was—I mean, to be totally honest with you—we were kind of the fun end-of-year school trip. <laughs> So teachers would come and they would they would bring their their class of, you know, a hundred eighth graders or or yeah. whatever. Um, and we have a scavenger hunt for the kids to do in the museum. And you know, we kind of bring them in, we sit them down, give them a little bit of a a, a quick oral history orientation type presentation, let them work on their scavenger hunt, take them up to see the court, um, and then over once we had the original rules of basketball, I'll take them over and and show them the original rules of basketball. We're, we're working to build a STEM program or a STEAM program, kind um, of to be determined a little bit, but we'd like to, you know, meet some, more closely meet some educational um, objectives for our local teachers. You know, I personally feel like you can teach a lot with sports. You know, you've got math, you've got physics, you've got design. And if you're looking at, you know, uniforms and logos and, you know, you can reach a lot of different topics by way of sport, which is a natural interest for a lot of kids and hopefully makes the material more understandable in a way that maybe it's not presented in the classroom. the The goal is to develop that. It's still in process. Education is not my was not my focus in grad school. <laughs> Collections care was so. I'm mm-hmm. kind of you know starting from scratch in terms of writing curriculum and and understanding what teachers need and how how that works to be able, especially these days, I feel like it has to be a really good match to the educational objectives yeah. um, of your of the, the lessons that they're teaching for funding to make it possible for them to you know get a bus over and and whatever so we're working on developing more Um, hopefully you know we'd like to have that in place but we were hoping to have it in place for this school year but then the national championship happened and and kind of other projects had to take priority for a bit so I'd like to work on developing it this school year so we can have it in place by next year hopefully maybe use the summer to kind of reach out to teachers and get some feedback and and you know see what if what we're doing is useful to them because obviously it doesn't make sense for us to put a whole lot of time and effort if we're going to create a product that's not usable. So,
0: Yeah, that's been eye-opening as I've talked to folks for the podcast is just how much emphasis there is on the standards and meeting them. Because when you're a kid, you don't Really know what the standards are. You don't get it, um, and that's right. that's yep. kind of the point: is to make it fun and make it engaging, and you're still learning stuff. But yeah, yeah I like what you said about sports touching so many parts of society, with like African American history or design or math and science. I think that's really really neat, and like you said, that'll resonate differently with different kids and different interests. So um, that's a cool way to help kids learn, and then mm-hmm. they can go see the court and go. Have some fun too
1: mm-hmm. yeah you still keep the, the element of fun right in it, which helps
0: speaking of fun the national championship was fun in april yes it was and just how cool was that to be part of the kind of campus environment and then what is the museum doing to kind of preserve that um, championship
1: so it was a lot of fun to be part of um so i was a student in 2008 when we won that national championship you know, getting to experience it now as a staff member, we had watch parties in the field house um, as we did back in 2008 and, and 12. And whenever we, had, whenever we have a final four, we have watch parties. So that's always cool. How we're you know uh, commemorating it? There we go. Sort of looking for. You know, we have obviously banners in the field house. Anything that's history based, that's public facing. something that comes under my purview um so i'm the one who you know makes sure we get the banners ordered and the design done and does i've got other facility updates you know more in like the men's basketball spaces we'll tell us the story in our story of sport exhibit um it's our chronological history exhibit out in the hall of athletics that we will create that story and add that to that exhibit um i do have on loan i haven't put them out yet they're sitting here next to me in my office um mitch Lightfoot's shoes he signs them i think he auctioned them off, or or I'm not exactly certain, Um, but I had, whoever bought them or ended up with them has loaned them to me, um, to the museum, not to me personally, (laughs) Um, to the museum to be put on exhibit. So my goal is to get those out before late night here in a month. So that when people come, they can see those. It says uh, he's lighting them, and it says something to the effect of worn during the you know the Final Four game, and then again in the national championship game, things like that. We've got uh, a team-signed ball. We've got the trophies out on exhibit already with a uniform from the Final Four. So we've kind of got little pieces scattered throughout. There is I just need to I need to get the kind of singular story mm-hmm. panel you know written and edited um, and and put up there. It's certainly something that we tell. Um, in as many places and ways that we can uh, across the
0: facility. That's the the cool part of being in college at that time is like you would always remember that where you were. And even as a fan, that's the, the cool part of being a fan is connecting like your personal life to the sporting events. Mm-hmm. And um, I know that's how I grew up, and that's how a lot of especially KU fans with how passionate sure. it is. And what does that kind of add to what you do is that the fans being so passionate, how does that oh, yeah. make your job maybe easier or maybe more difficult because the fans are so knowledgeable?
1: I mean, there's certainly, which I appreciate there, are, there are people who point out errors. If there are errors in our exhibit, you know, there are people who feel very strongly. It's not basketball related, but like, so we've got the the football stadium, um, which is clearly we're in the process publicly of, of figuring out how or if we're going to update that or how that's going to work. But in the meantime, you know, we've got graphics that we put up on the exterior. People are very opinionated about, you know, why is this person not there? Or, you know, this person should be up there. And it's a limited number of spaces. We had to make decisions somehow. Um, So, like, it it is what it is. But having people who feel strongly about it is both a joy and a pain. Uh, (laughs) And other things, like I'm just thinking, uh, you know, exhibit-wise in the museum, if if I take something off exhibit, which I mean, y- you're in, in the field, you understand that things are not intended to be on exhibit forever. They get yeah. slight damage and um, just generally like it's not great for something to be out long, long term. But if something gets taken down, people notice. Some people are here 16 times a year. If you know, for home basketball games or, or what have you, and, or they come once a year for their, for their one basketball game. And they come with the museum and, and their favorite thing is gone and then you hear about it. Thankfully, most people, you know, once you under, once you explain that, like, hey, you know, we had this similar thing that came in that we could shift out and give the artifacts a rest, they understand that. They're disappointed still, but they understand there's definitely people who feel strongly about things like that. Um, I feel like in a lot of museums, you might not necessarily get that because people aren't coming back that frequently, but people are here a lot, a lot of people.
0: yeah it's neat that it's like right there as part of the field house Mm -hmm. um, entrance really it's kind of its own separate entrance but it's all connected which is interesting and how yeah yeah, if you have season tickets and you're there 16 times over the winter you're gonna walk through it and how much attention people Mm -hmm. pay kind of varies probably but it is there for people to see and look at and what are some of the things that they notice just more broadly like what exhibits are on display and Just kind of give people a a walkthrough.
1: We've got our story of sport, which, like I mentioned, is our timeline exhibit, which starts in 18 in the 1800s. um, We started baseball um, and then it runs chronologically through um, my most recent update, which at the moment is like 2016 and will be updated soon. So that's our story of sport in that we have two two exhibits about our Olympians that are part of that. And then we have kind of a Wilt Chamberlain exhibit um, that's a part of that as well. Um, We have the original center court piece on display. Um, We have our Hall of Fame back in the back wall. Uh, We have a, excuse me, what I call call the championship corner, which is kind of where we have all of our championship, our NCAA trophies, and some others as well that are kind of bigger, bigger trophies. Kansas Experience, as you walk in, there's a wall of six cases. Um, The front says, like, K-A-N-S-A-S, and then there's different kind of um, fan-related content, um, media coverage, spirit squad, marching band, school songs, things like that in those cases. And then you mentioned the original rules of basketball kind of being separate, but together. They are technically in the, the DeBruce Center, but nobody really understands that it's a separate space. It's all kind of one experience. But that's kind of the the oversight. Some of the more noticeable things that people, um, which we, we try to leave out as, as much as possible and not swap. Uh, we have a bunch of championship rings Um, Max Falkenstein, the announcer, for 60 years as a a staff member, he got rings. And so we have a bunch of his rings. We have uh, an NBA championship ring from Wayne Simeon, um, which is with Miami Heat, which is pretty cool. We've got Wilt Chamberlain's leather jacket. That's one of those things that should be probably rotated off more frequently than it is because it is such a notable um, artifact. But it's got leather sleeves and, you know, temperature and humidity is controlled. But it's also not because the field house doesn't have AC temperature control. That's in there. We've got the national championship trophy trophies, which are noticeable. And then like, just like when somebody donates or loans something, right? Like we typically don't accept the loan unless we intend to display it um, for the, for the term of the loan. So it's, it's pretty rare that somebody comes in and, and you know, has says, I've loaned something, where is it? And it's not on display. But if somebody donates something, you know, we, we make it explicitly clear in our paperwork and in our conversations that it's, it's our purview. It's our decisions as to when and how, and where things are displayed because we can't have them out all the time. Um, but sometimes people, yeah. you know, they they come in and they have they have identified that you know this was their favorite artifact or this was their family thing, and and then we move it or or we pull it down and disappointing
0: for them. You maybe get asked this a lot, but do you have a favorite artifact or one that you like to to care for?
1: Like I said before, I like the fog fogaline liniment. It's pretty cool. I like the smell of it mostly. That's probably my favorite part because a lot of things, you know that. That we have in our collection don't necessarily smell real great, um, but that eucalyptus smell of the of the liniment is delicious. Other than that, I don't really know if I have a, a necessarily a favorite artifact. We've got some pretty cool things, some scrapbooks and things like that that are not on exhibit that are up in our in our storage space that I just think are cool because I like the the stories that they tell. But that's something that we would kind of translate into text some other way, so they're not they're not out for people to
0: see. My last couple of questions kind of deal with more broadly working in a museum you mentioned before we started recording something about just enjoying like the quiet moments before people um, come to the museum or before a game day. Can you talk more about that? Cause I think mm-hmm. that that resonated with me who somebody that likes the quiet at times and wants to just kind of walk around by myself. What does that look like for you? Like prior to game day?
1: To be honest with you, like that's kind of why I got into museums too, right? Like I wanted the quiet time and space and, and, and personal interaction with the artifacts um, and with the history. Yeah. So for, for the hall of athletics in particular, it's my part of my duties is to clean the exhibit cases Annually, uh, get in there and pull everything out, clean it all, dust it all off, clean it up, and, and put it back. And so that's something that I typically try to do in closed hours because I don't want you know people wandering by and, and touching things. <laughs> um, so I, that's something that I do when I come in in the morning. Um, you know, I'll, I'll pop up in a case and and pull everything out. And it's just it's that there's nobody there. Sometimes I'll throw a podcast yeah. on or, or you know or just enjoy the silence of of not having anybody around and get to look and touch at the artifacts and and you know make sure that things are not disintegrating or deteriorating any faster than they should be Um, which thankfully for the most part they're not after we switched all of our halogen bulbs to leds that was a big help and but like the acoustics in our in our facility because we are part of the basketball facility like it's it's loud and it's not a, a normal, like an art museum or a history museum where like we encourage people to be super quiet, right? We tell the kids when they come on their tours that like you can talk, we, I mean, we ask you not to yell, but you don't have to like walk around and tiptoe. Yeah. So sound bounces. And if you're out there working, you know, whether I'm working a desk or if I'm just out working, fixing something while, while we're open, the noise fatigue gets to me. So it's nice to have that, that quiet time in the morning mm-hmm. to just be able to focus on what I'm doing and making sure that what we have in our care is well taken care of to the best of our abilities. Obviously, there are things that we cannot control and things just do deteriorate over time. Like that is the nature of material. But to the best of our ability, we want to make sure that it's being taken care of.
0: Yeah. It sounds like that collections aspect was is kind of your specialty. You kind of mentioned that earlier. But then you're also doing educational Uh things or giving tours and just engaging with hall of famers. So what is, I know there's not like a day to day or like everyday task really, but that's probably part of the fun. And just, can you kind of talk about that variability in your work?
1: That is the perk of working in a small museum because typically they have minimal staff and everybody gets to do a little bit of everything like i said uh, uh, for the longest part of my job here i was my title was director um because it kind of fits in line well with athletics and and how they they run their title tiers so as director you know i'm i'm writing exhibits in my office i'm you know taking care of the collection i'm processing our collection we use that's perfect on our database mm-hmm. um so I'm, I'm entering things in there making sure that things are stored properly upstairs i am supervising the tour guides Giving tours myself sometimes, you know, if we need extra hands on deck, or if somebody calls in sick, like that's on me to cover. Um, answering inquiries from the public, uh, or from you know ESPN, they want to know. At one point, there was a, I think it was a Super Bowl, they were doing a commercial <clears throat> and they were colorizing photographs. Um, Gail Sayers was one that they wanted to colorize, and so they needed to know what color our uniforms were in the early 1960s. And so I had to you know pull some pull some old photos, and they thought that they were blue. It turns out they were red and white. So answering things like that, doing historical research, it's a very varied position, which, like you said, that's something that I enjoy about it, because I think that I would get a little bit bored of the monotony of, I love collections, and I love collections care and processing collections, but like, even I can only take a day or two, like, if that's all I'm doing, I need a break, because it's isolating. If it's just you in the storage room with a bunch of old stuff, like, it's cool because it's cool stuff, but it's, it's isolating and you need a little bit of interaction with some people sometimes. I like that. And I have been very fortunate to have supervisors who are, you know, they understand that, that this is my specialty and they have other specialties. And so they have been, thankfully, you know, fairly hands off um, and let me do what needs to be done um, and, and have kind of free reign to handle things and, and you know, manage the budget and, and all the things that to get what I need to do done, which is nice because what I was trained to do. There are definitely, I, looking back at my, uh, my graduate career, there are definitely, my graduate school career, there are things that, classes that I wish I would have taken, you know, I expected to go into a collections management position, um, that was what I wanted to do, well, I should, you know, I, I kind of wish I would have taken, you know, more education classes, um, you know, some administration classes, thankfully, like, I don't have to do fundraising, we have a fundraising department um, and I just kind of fall under the umbrella overall. I'm very grateful that I don't have to do fundraising, but you know, the education classes, the collections classes, the administration, like having a well-rounded education is helpful because the odds in the museum field that you're going to end up in a very narrow, unless you're in the federal system, like a very narrow job role, like are so slim. (laughs) So my, my advice to, to anybody in the field is, is, Even if it's not necessarily the most interesting thing in the world to you, like if you can fit it into your schedule, take the classes that you don't want to take necessarily, because it will probably come in handy at some point in your career.
0: That's something that I've had to kind of just tell people myself as I've started grad school is they hear I'm doing museum studies and they're like, they're confused because they're like, (laughs) well, what, what is that? (laughs) And
1: right. Why? At least it's called museum studies here at at UW. It's museology. And everyone's like, what in the world is like, is that? So yeah. I usually just have to museum studies so because it's easier. <laughs> yeah,
0: and people don't really realize, like, there's so much within the museum field, and that's something that appeals to me and appeals to a lot of people in the industry is you have the different, like, subject matters, like natural history or art or sports mm-hmm. or regular yep. history, and then there's, like, the education piece or the the research piece or the mm-hmm. kind of, like, science and construction piece at times. And that's something I didn't really realize before I started working at the art museum. It's like Mm -hmm. somebody has to build the exhibits. Yeah. There's companies that do that, but a lot of that is in-house for a lot of groups. So there's all this stuff and all of these skills. And it's hard to have every skill, but like you said, you can have a piece of collections and a piece of education and Mm -hmm. then maybe a specialty of something else. And
1: knowing uh, how to do graphic design, like all the things.
0: Yeah, and there's so much with that, and being in a small museum, it's it's probably hard to make it as as good as it can be with limited funding or limited staff. But I really, really do like that. Ku yeah. has this space, and it's really cool to walk through it and see James Naismith and then Fog Allen and his materials, and yeah. all yeah. the way up to Mitch Lightfoot shoes once they're on display and the the new trophy. Yeah. So, yeah, connecting. Connecting those hundred plus years yeah. of history is really neat. My last question, Abby, is just where can people find the Booth Family Hall of Athletics? That's a very
1: good question. Um, so we are uh, attached to the east side of Allen House. You know, we're open Monday through Saturday, typically 10 to 5. But if there's a home football game or a home basketball game, that those hours might might alter because we are a main entrance point for basketball games. So we have to close down to get everything kind of game prep Digitally, uh, you know, we are KUathletics.com slash booth hall we're on facebook and twitter though not particularly active that's where i post a lot of like our our alternate hours um, on game days and stuff like that so social media is sort of there <laughs> um, but yeah a lot of people come to the hall of athletics looking for allen field house not realizing they're one and the same or <laughs> they'll come to you know Bruce, which is attached looking for the hall of athletics or allen field house like we're all kind of one giant complex yeah. but for the most part, the doors of Allen Fieldhouse are closed on regular days. They're locked in unless you're at the Hall of Athletics. So there's a big grass lawn, there's a statue of Fog Allen, and, and those are the entrance points uh, to the Hall of Athletics. Sweet. Well,
0: thank you, Abby, for your time today and our conversation. I really enjoyed it. And having been to the Booth Hall of Athletics myself, it's a really cool look at KU Athletics and just how... Um, Wide ranging it is not just basketball, but all the sports, including the, the women back in the 60s and 70s that you talked about as people that were really dedicated to athletics, even at a time where it wasn't equitable. So really good to preserve that history. And just thanks for what you do at, at KU. Thank you. Thank
1: you for having me. This was
0: fun. I grew up in Kansas City, which is an underrated college basketball hotbed. Situated between KU and the University of Missouri, it is the longtime host of the Big 12 tournament and has actually hosted more Final Fours than any other city. It is also home to the College Basketball Experience, an interactive museum which holds the College Basketball Hall of Fame. One of those Hall of Famers? None other than Danny Manning, a KU legend who won the national championship in KC in 1988. In this overtime segment, I learn more about the life and career of this Jayhawk great. Danny Manning was born May 17, 1966 in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, but grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina. He won the basketball state championship at Greensboro Page High School, but moved and graduated from Lawrence High School in Lawrence, Kansas. In a shrewd move by then-KU head coach Larry Brown, Danny's father, Ed, who played in the NBA and ABA himself, was hired as an assistant coach after Danny's junior year in Greensboro. That's why they moved to Lawrence. So, Danny stayed in Lawrence and played four outstanding years at KU. His style of play would fit right in with the LeBrons and Giannis of today. He was 6 feet 10 inches with outstanding ball handling skills. In Danny's sophomore season, KU finished 35-4 and was a number one seed in the NCAA tournament. They advanced to the final four before losing to Duke. Danny averaged 16 points and 6 rebounds on the year and was named Big 8 Player of the Year, an award he would win two more times. In his junior season, he averaged 23 points and 9 rebounds per game, earning first-team All-American status. And his senior year was one for the ages. However, KU ended up with 11 losses in the regular season and finished third in the Big 8. They were a sixth seed in March Madness that year. Danny and the Miracles, as they came to be known, could not be stopped. In the tournament, they defeated Xavier, Murray State, and Vanderbilt before meeting in-state rival Kansas State in the Elite Eight. As someone who grew up adjacent to Lawrence in Manhattan, I can only imagine the tense battle that that game was. KU prevailed 71-58 behind Manning's 20 points. The Final Four that year was held at Kemper Arena in Kansas City, and that was the last time the city hosted the event. Only an hour from Lawrence, the atmosphere was raucous as KU beat Duke to advance to the championship. Remember, they were a 6th seed and not expected to make it this far. They met Big 8 conference foe Oklahoma in the championship game. I'll include highlights in the episode's show notes so you can see how dominant Danny Manning was in this game. It's incredible to watch his hustle, shot-making ability, and drive to win. In the game, he put up 31 points, 18 rebounds, and 5 steals, and KU shocked OU to win the title. 1988 was a remarkable year for Danny. He was also drafted number one overall by the Clippers in the NBA draft, and was on the 1988 Olympic National Team, which won bronze in Seoul, South Korea. Danny averaged 11 points and 6 rebounds over 8 Olympic Games. He then played 15 seasons in the NBA for 7 teams, spending the most time with the Clippers and Suns. He made two All-Star teams and was named 6th man of the year in 1998. Danny Manning still leads all KU basketball players in career points and career rebounds, quite an accomplishment when you consider all the greats who have come through Allen Fieldhouse. He ranks 12th all-time in NCAA history in career points. Currently, Danny's associate head coach at Louisville, and previously he was an assistant at KU, including during the 2008 championship season, and head coach at Tulsa and Wake Forest. One of the greatest college basketball players ever, his number 25 jerseys in the rafters at Allen Fieldhouse. Quite a KU career for Danny Manning. You can find the Booth Family Hall of Athletics online via the KU Athletics website, which I'll link to in the show notes for this episode. You can also find the Booth Hall on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks to Abby for a great conversation close to home. I appreciate you listening to episode 26 of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, check out our episode archive on your podcast app for interviews with museum professionals from the BC Sports Hall of Fame, Kansas Sports Hall of Fame, and many more. Thanks in advance. Until next time, sports fans.